Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. Join us in an exploration of the mystic-skeptic mind space. On this week's show, our guest is Zachary Foster. He's the host of uh, Middle East Tonight on YouTube. He's here to discuss the Saudi kingdom and how timely his lampooning of the House of Saudi has been uh, based on the latest developments in the news. Um, what made you uh, talk about the Saudi Kingdom? Did you do that one first or the one on Palestine for your pilot? The pilot episode was actually on Saudi Arabia. It was on Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And the reason I chose that topic is because um, it was it's quite topical. I think a number of pieces had appeared in the previous few months on MBS, as he's known. Um, uh, Thomas Friedman uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, praising his reforms. There was a really long piece in the New Yorker, a, pro a profile of, of Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and he generally had just been capturing headlines uh, for a while. He had done a two to three week tour around the U.S. meeting President Trump, of course, and he met with Hollywood execs. He met with um, tech execs in Silicon Valley. He met with a whole slew of prominent um, Americans. And so he had really been dominating headlines for many, many months. And many of the headlines had really been quite, quite positive, um, which was just so startling and shocking given all of the things he had been doing both inside Saudi Arabia and in the region in general that were just totally antithetical to val democratic values, um, to freedom of press, freedom of speech, to, to, to respect for human rights and so on. Um, so that's that's kind of why I wanted to cover him in particular, and you know, so it's the situation in Saudi Arabia more generally. Well, um, on this station, and um, on, I listen to Democracy Now, and that show usually has like a like a radical progressive perspective, and you hear from them, you know, more about talking about human rights, more about um, how they're attacking Yemen and things like that, but. Do you see the American media as just being enamored with whatever's going on or whatever the government pushes? Like, are they critical enough to be able to, to handle complex problems or do they just go with whatever is popular at that time? So I think there are voices in the American um, uh, media that are very critical of Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I, I you know, take, for example, John Oliver, who actually just did a, 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 one of his long-form segments on Mohammed bin Salman uh, actually two days ago. He was obviously extremely critical of MBS. Um, Vox uh, News has done a piece on MBS, which was quite critical. Um, you know, there are voices, um, but they tend to be, uh, you know, the more progressive sort of media outlets. Um, if you turn to, I think it was CBS or who was it? 60 minutes. I think 60 minutes did a profile of MBS, which was quite, um, uh, positive. So he, I, I think you're seeing a range of views. Because what, in my research, what you see is that, um, some people can, can say, oh, well, he, he let women drive or he's opening the country for business. But is, is that just throwing a couple of bones to Westerners or, do you see that as, as actually 
some type of small or even um, the Middle Eastern version of a progressive agenda coming from him. Yeah, what to what to make of the um, the advancement of women's rights in the kingdom? Look, I think it's worth stating that you know women are clearly better off under Mohammed bin Salman than they were uh, before him. Um, not just the right to drive, but he's pushing for the um, more women's increased participation participation in the workforce. Um, obviously, women's attendance in, in soccer games, uh, theaters, concerts. Um, he's, he's obviously a more sort of, you know, uh, he has a more progressive agenda when it comes to women's rights. Um, there's, no, there's no question about that. But having said that, like, the situation for women in Saudi Arabia still, even under MBS, is abysmal. I mean, women are essentially subject to what's known as the guardianship system, uh, in which women are required to obtain permission from their male guardian, who can be a brother, husband, father, um, even a, a son, actually, a 17-year-old son. They're required to obtain permission from this male guardian to travel outside of the country, to work, to get married. Um, so, I mean, women still are very much second-class citizens, um, and, and MBS hasn't really shaken that foundation. That foundation of inequality is still there. Now, um, you know, you could, you could say he's moving in the right direction, and he is, but it just the changes still feel um, way too slow and too insignificant. And, like... And you mentioned in your piece about it that um, someone can be autocratic or authoritarian um, and then have also, uh, since they're the king, they can do whatever they want. So they could say, okay, well, on this subject, I'm open to women's rights. But when it comes down to uh, journalism or protest, I'm going to throw everybody in jail or even kill them. So how how does is, is that what um, what being a monarch is all about that that you can pretty much pick and choose which way you want to go on different topics? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, MBS is is extremely hostile to any type of criticism of his regime and his rule. Um, we saw that um, almost from the very beginning. Um, uh, you know, he, he, that, that infamous, uh, cor quote unquote, cor uh, cor corruption crackdown, which was basically just a power grab. I mean, he, uh, blocked up, uh, was it over a hundred, 120 of, of his, essentially his rivals, right? These were all people in the Royal family, princes, ministers, business people who were powerful in the kingdom. And he was, what he was telling them was, listen, I'm the one in control now. Um, you know, if you want to, if, if, if you want to do business in the kingdom, if you want to play politics in the kingdom, you know, you do what I tell you to. And he's done the same thing, uh, with uh, regard to women, even though he does have this, you know, somewhat progressive agenda when it comes to women's rights. Uh, he then went around and arrested women who were activists, you know, doing, uh, you know, being active on social media and, 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 and writing, blog posts and, and, and so on and so forth of promoting women's rights in the kingdom, he went and had not jail them. So, you know, his, what's very clear is that what he, 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 he doesn't, 
his his progressive politics when it comes to women doesn't seem to have any effect on his politics with regard to freedom of uh, of expression. Well, one of my greatest fears um, on doing the show is getting um, too much uh, pushback. Like I I noticed that um, some of the reviews of your show regarding the Saudi Kingdom was you know well who are you to criticize how our kingdom works or um, how dare you tell us, uh, you know, what's right and wrong. And you have people like John Brennan, uh, the former CIA director who does categorize the Saudi kingdom as authoritarian autocratic, just like, um, the leader of North Korea or even the leader of Russia. So, um, do you run, you mentioned that in the last show that, uh, people can come and, and say, well, uh, you're not part of that, that culture. How dare you? Um, question us uh, is that a, a legitimate claim because you know now there's a hypersensitivity regarding people being culturally sensitive people being politically correct where where do you, do you do you feel that some of those the criticism should be um, taken into consideration yeah look I I, th I wish people would would address the points I'm raising not my ethnic racial or Or religious background. Um, if you want to engage with my ideas, with what I'm saying, great. If you're criticizing me because of who I am and where I come from, then it just feels very much like an ad hominem attack against me as a person, not the ideas that I'm presenting. So I just, I guess, I just have very, very little tolerance for people who tell me that um, my viewpoint is illegitimate because I'm an American citizen. I mean, it's just sort of completely absurd. It would be sort of like saying, if you're Iraqi or Egyptian, you have no right criticizing Israel because you're not an Israeli. It's just sort of a completely ridiculous argument. And same would be like criticizing the U.S. because every country would say, well, the U.S. is messing up or not doing what they're supposed to. And then we can say, oh, well, you don't understand what it's like to be an American and having this kind of... Uh, clean slate to do whatever we want yeah exactly exactly i mean it, it would i would i would say the same and it says if you take this argument to its logical conclusion you know that you're only allowed to criticize people who are like you then ultimately you're only ever allowed to criticize yourself because there's no one else in the world who's exactly like you um and so it just it, the argument is just so completely nonsensical and lacks any foundation that I, I it's just hard to even address it seriously well but uh dealing with that you know the same can go with like who are we to criticize the way women are treated or who are we to criticize uh public executions and i know that um you know you can make cases for anything based on people's culture or people's um way of, of looking at the world so what what is in your eyes the the progressive platform for dealing with different cultures because um you know there's there's a, a famous singer who became a muslim and they asked him well do you believe the people who blaspheme should they be executed and he said well as a muslim under my uh, religious law that is normal or that's acceptable and then the the liberal americans went bananas because they're like oh that's not acceptable to us so what is the criteria that we should use and in, in dealing with different parts of the world, especially when you hear a lot of progressives that who are we to 
push for democracy or for regime change in these type of nations. Yeah, it, it does come back to this question of like, who should we focus our criticism on? And that's that's an interesting question. Um, maybe as as Americans, it's our duty to criticize our own government first. But you could also say as um, as act uh, advocates for freedoms uh, that we ourselves cherish deeply, such as freedom of expression, it's our duty to champion freedom of expression. I mean, what greater freedom do I have as uh, as an American citizen that I can throw up a, a show on YouTube and express my political viewpoints with total impunity? I can say pretty much whatever I want. I mean, as, as long as it's not hateful speech or as long as I'm not inciting to violence. I mean, there are obviously some restrictions, but basically, you know, I can kind of say what I want. Um, and that's, that's incredibly beautiful. And that's just a freedom that so many people around the world don't have. Um, so, um, so, you know, as an advocate for freedom of expression, for me, that's really important. Well, and that, that segues to the main topic. And I'm glad that we're doing our shows as a uh, every week as compared to pre-recording them. Now we have a situation where uh, the U.S., who has been vacillating regarding uh, freedom of, of expression for journalists, there's been a lot of rhetoric against journalists. There's been journalists who have been uh, prosecuted and persecuted even in the previous administration. Um, now there's a case where um, we we give refuge to, to journalists, to people who want to speak freely, and now a country that they dissented from or that they left can actually find a way to get to them. So can you tell us your perspective on what happened to the dissident journalist uh, Jamal uh, Khashoggi and how that impacts the, the work that you do and the rights of journalists across the world? Yeah, it's a tragic uh, thing that happened. I mean, Jamal Khashoggi was a very prominent uh, Saudi journalist. He was a he was a frequent guest on uh, U.S. political talk shows. He had a column in the Washington Post. Uh, he uh, was the former, I think, editor of Al Arabiya, no, um, of a, the, uh, a newspaper in Saudi Arabia. Um, and, uh, and the Saudi government, uh, murdered him. I mean, it's pretty clear. The evidence is, um, is, 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 is all pointing to the direction that this was a, essentially an assassination. Um, the Turkish government claims it has a video or audio and video recordings of, of him being beaten. There's a evidence, uh, that's come out that, uh, you know, there were 15 Saudis that flew to, uh, to Istanbul at like, they landed at like 3.30 a.m. the day of uh, his assassination and they flew out the same day. One of them brought in like a bone saw. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Obviously, he was murdered. And now, even today, I believe I, uh, the story broke that uh, one of the uh, the murderers was actually, is he's seen photographed close to Mohammed bin Salman. So there's even at least some circumstantial evidence that's already coming out that MBS was tied to this. And it's pretty clear. You, I mean, a consulate doesn't do something this extraordinary, you know, murder one of its own citizens on for, essentially foreign soil um, without a permission or approval from the highest levels of government. And that would obviously be MBS. So, you know, 
and, and MBS, by the way, has a history of, of doing this. This isn't the first time that he's done this. This is the first high-profile case. The other ones have been much quieter. Um, and the BBC actually produced a fascinating report in 2017 that very few people are aware of. Um, but it was an extremely it was it was a brilliant investigative report produced by the BBC showing how they uh, MBS had actually kidnapped multiple princes um, already princes who were either critical of him or um, disagreed with him or were potential rivals for him and um, one of them I believe was on a flight uh, he was landing he thought he was landing in Egypt uh, in Cairo and as soon as the flight was he was. He touched down. He noticed, like, wait, we're not in Cairo. We're in Riyadh, and he had he had been tricked. And his pilot had flown him to Riyadh. They, he, the plane landed. They grabbed him. They kidnapped him. We haven't heard him uh, heard from him since. Same thing happened with a second Saudi prince. So this the, the MBS actually has a history of um, kidnapping and now uh, murdering his political rivals and opponents or uh, journalists who are critical of him, and it's uh, it's it's tragic. So now the, there is reports that they're claiming that it was a rendition gone wrong or an, uh, some type of um, um, they, they were questioning him as an interrogation gone wrong and that there was no plan of, of uh, getting rid of him. Um, how, how unlikely is that? Uh, well, obviously, well, it'll, it'll be difficult to ever know the full complete truth um did they interrogate him probably um uh were they did was there uh were they trying to kill him probably um i mean the guys who showed up at including the uh, forensics expert um an, an autopsy expert associated with the saudi government he flew in with the with the bone saw at 3:30 a.m. the morning of the assassination. Like, and then you can and then you're going and claiming that uh, this was an accident. I mean, it's just sort of incredulous. It's just like you're, you've lost all credibility uh, to the extent that you had any to begin with. Are you familiar with um, something about the prime minister of Lebanon being kidnapped and then? Um, made to resign by the the Saudis. Yeah, the whole Harari uh, situation where he was um, sort of kidnapped. It's a bit unclear exactly what happened, but um, flown back to Lebanon and and then yeah, I'm, I, yeah. What was going on in that situation? Because the there was um, a report that was saying that you can tell that each administration from the Obama to the Trump administration, they're picking sides on a power struggle between the Saudis and the Iranians. So do, do the Saudis have that much uh, control over the Middle East where they can uh, depose uh, prime ministers of different countries? Well, the Saudis do exert uh, a lot of influence in the Middle East. Um, they, um, they certainly exert a lot of influence in Lebanon through Saad Hariri, um, they exert influence in, or at least they try to, in Qatar. Um, uh, the UAE, obviously, I mean, the UAE is in many ways a kind of, I mean, an extension almost of the uh, of Saudi Arabia. Um, I, recently, there have been some breaks, but they, they're very much aligned on most issues. 
Um, uh, the Saudis exert a huge amount of influence in Bahrain. If you recall back in during the Arab Spring, the Saudis sent troops, I believe it was, to Bahrain to quell that revolt. The Saudis obviously exert a huge amount of influence in Yemen, where they're uh, in, um, dropping bombs pretty much every day on civilians, killing many, many hundreds of civilians. Uh, uh, I think until now, the estimates are over 10,000 they've killed in Yemen. Uh, civilians, so um, essentially unarmed combatants, uh, non-combatants, um, they exert a, a huge amount of influence in, in in Egypt as well. If you recall, it was um, during the election, uh, well, so-called election of Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, was it like there was? I mean, it was like maybe it was six months ago, a year ago, when uh, it was. It was basically a sham election. There were no competitors to Sisi. The, um, the Saudis threw the support behind him, um, and they, and, um, and they, I think they, um, I mean, they were donated, they've given him a huge, uh, quite a lot of money as well. And now there's talks, uh, maybe there's some discussions of Egypt selling territory to Saudi Arabia for this new vision 2030 plan. They exert a huge amount of influence all across the region, um, uh, obviously, in the Israel-Palestine uh, question, the infamous Saudi um, uh, was it the Saudi peace plan, um, which they had put forward many, many years ago, still is sort of gets floated around time and again as a potential solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. So definitely, they play a huge role, um, pretty much everywhere in the region and beyond, of course, um, in the greater Muslim world. And, and we see that. Um the Bushes, um, you know, the first president, the second one, were big friends with Saudis. Now you have uh, Trump and Kushner, uh, an Orthodox Jew, um, kind of working with them uh, behind the scenes. So what do you think is the U.S.'s um, plan? Like when, when Trump was asked um, if he was going to investigate regarding the, the death of the, the journalist, he was worried about... Uh, investments, jobs, other things. He uh, now he's sounding more interested in in uh, kind of reprimanding the Saudis regarding this because of political pressure. But what what do you think is the the ultimate goal of the current administration in having close ties with the Saudis as compared to what people are saying that the Obama administration was more interested in building bridges with Iran? Yeah, the current administration. Um... It very clearly is interested in maintaining uh, strong ties with Saudi Arabia. Um, Donald Trump's first foreign uh, trip as president was to Saudi Arabia. And you recall those infamous photos with Trump standing around that shining gl purple globe with Sisi and King, uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, uh, Jared Kushner has, of course, the president's son-in-law and, uh, advisor has um, uh, developed a very close relationship with Mohammed bin Salman. There were reports, I believe, that came out that Kushner had stayed up till 3 a.m. one night chatting with MBS about different things. Um, uh, you know, so, so there, 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 there's clearly a desire to, to, to maintain a good relationship with the kingdom. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that they're, they're, you know, I mean, 
who knows what Trump will say now that the pressure is mounting? Um, he, his first reaction was, "Oh, may, maybe these uh, this there was a this squad, this mob. It was a mob that killed him, and it was totally um, unauthorized." And, and he even said, uh, I, "I talked to NBS. NBS said said it wasn't me, and I believe him." Um, you know, so so I, 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 it's possible Trump will shift gears, but I I don't see that as being especially likely. I think he will continue to support the the, the Saudis. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, in the Jimmy Dore show, another comedian he played a, a clip of um, um, Kerry um, um, before Congress saying that. The U.S. Uh, has made a deal with some uh, regimes where if they want the U.S. to fight certain wars for them, uh, they're willing to, to pay the bill. Um, do you see, um, as that like the new thing, that um, the our, our army is acting like mercenaries for uh, certain empires to be able to keep them in power, or that our involvement is all financial when it comes down to selling weapons. And, you know, in, in progressive circles, they say that it's a U.S.-backed uh, war against Yemen. And I hadn't noticed that Yemen is actually right under Saudi Arabia. So are they trying to take over the whole peninsula? Uh, what do you know about this? Yeah, so there's two issues there. The first is sort of, you know, why is the U.S., uh, especially the Trump administration, trying to strengthen ties to Saudi Arabia? What is uh, Trump's interest in Saudi Arabia? The second is, um, what's the deal with the war in Yemen? Well, let's start with the um, Trump administration's relationship to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think that the big issue, the big, the main issue for Trump is the weapons sales. Um, the uh, they signed in a memorandum of understanding, not not a contract, but the memorandum of of understanding, which talked about all of these uh, de weapons deals between essentially American uh, weapons manufacturers and the Saudi government. Discussed, uh, I think, in the amount it was hundreds of billions of dollars. I think the actual sale was much much lower in the tens of billions, um, but. Um, But certainly Trump sees this, you know, Trump sees himself as uh, the great defender of, you know, um, American workers. And he sees, you know, Saudi, uh, this arms deal as a way to keep Americans employed, um, it, it, you know, in this case, in the weapons manufacturing industry. Um, so that, that does seem to be a very important um, thing for Trump. Um, of course, there's also oil, uh, the, the oil uh, question. We still, get a, we still import a huge amount of oil from Saudi Arabia, um, although much less so than we previously did. Um, and, um, and then, the, you know, the, the issue with, I mean, sort of what, what, what's the deal with Yemen? Um, very, I mean, Yemen, the, the Yemeni conflict um, obviously predates uh, Saudi Arabia's intervention in it. Um, and the Yemeni conflict is a very complicated conflict, but um, basically um, you have uh, right now Houthi rebels who, um, uh, who, who, have, um, uh, who are in conflict with uh, Sunnis and, and uh, the uh, Saudis back the Sunnis and Iran backs the Houthi rebels. The Houthi rebels have taken over or, uh, you know, are in control of various parts of the country, including parts of Sana'a, the capital. 
And uh, this is dangerous in Saudi Arabia's uh, worldview because um, it, it's sort of having e e Iran as the southern uh, flank, right? Uh, you know, right on its border, and this is a scary thought for for uh, for the Saudis. So they're um, trying to you know kick the Houthis out of power, um, and so it's it's a pretty brutal conflict, and they're um, you know they're dropping many many bombs on in civilian areas. Kind of really been they've been accused of indiscriminate targeting of civilians. Uh, like I said, I believe the figure now is sort of over 10,000. Um, so, um, yeah. What about the petrodollars? Um, you know, there was um, the idea that one of the reasons that Saddam Hussein was the uh, deposed was because he wasn't willing to play a game uh, regarding that. And now they're saying that... Uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, a lot of control over uh, the oil market uh, and, and the U.S. wants to keep uh, the dollars under their currency. And then how much of the of the U.S. is owned by Saudi Arabia? Um, you know, there's there was a report when when he did when the prince did um, the purging of people he didn't like that a lot of them were major investors in American companies such as Citibank, 20th Century Fox, Apple, Twitter, and Lyft. It, yes, exactly right. Um, uh, who was it? Turkuvin Faisal. There was a, a couple of big names, one of whom I think, yeah, was one of the chief investors of Twitter and Lyft. Um, you had, um, yeah, you you know, the, look, the, the Saudis... Um, play an enormous role, uh, you know, in, in the region because of the oil. Um, and, uh, I mean, Aramco, the Saudi, the state run oil company, I think is valued. Um, I mean, it's in the trill, it's in the trillions. Uh, I mean, we're talking a massive, massive company. Um, I, excuse me. I think the IPO, which is, is going to be only 5% of the companies in the trillions. So, um, Uh, so in any case, like it's, it's that oil money that's driving, you know, uh, the Saudi economy. Um, and so you have all of these investors who are able to, all these royals who are essentially benefactors of that, um, oil who are, you know, investing in all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, in our show, we tried to debunk conspiracy theories and I don't know how familiar or knowledgeable you are about, uh, different ones that are out there, but, um. I ran into someone who was saying that the Chinese own everything, including the, the U.S. debt and things like that. Uh, compared to the, the Saudis, um, who has the most control over American uh, money and and goods coming through? Um, because that's something that a lot of the nativists or anti-globalists would claim to be the case to make uh, America more self-sufficient and less dependent on other countries. I'm sorry, could you, just, could you just repeat that? I apologize, I, I didn't hear that. Sure, what I was saying is that um, there's different conspiracy theories about how either the Chinese or the Saudis or the Jews or whoever owns the banks or the financial resources or the debt. And based on your knowledge of, of, of true numbers as compared to conspiracy theories, uh, how much of the, the U.S. is uh, in debt to these other countries and... And is that uh, is there a case for what the nativists are saying that we should be more independent and we should be less globalist in our 
uh, in our dealings with others because at any point they could take their money out or that they have too much influence in American affairs? Um, well, look, the... Um, I think the there's a lot to say here, but I think in general the benefits that we accrue from essentially trade and uh, with foreign countries far outweighs the costs. Um, labor in the United States is very expensive. Uh, we um, so it, it it just anything that's kind of labor intensive essentially gets. Um, produced elsewhere, outside of the U.S., where labor is much cheaper. Um, and that benefits American consumers. That is good for your average American who, uh, you know, has to spend, say, $20,000 on a new car instead of, a, you know, if you were had to pay American workers, you'd be spending three, four times that much. Um, you know, so, so, and the same is true pretty much of every manufactured product we consume and use. Um, you know, just, just imagine walking into a grocery store or wa walking into, you know, a hardware store or a department store and everything being literally three or four or five times as much, much money. And, and that's how much things would cost if you didn't, if we didn't live in a global economy, if you, if you said, no, we're going to stop, uh, trading with countries, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to stop, uh, accruing these debts that people hear about China. Yeah, great. Then you're going to go, you know, you're not going to be able to afford to buy anything. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just sort of a bit of a silly, uh, point. Um, um, you know, um, I mean, we, we could get into details. I mean, are, are you thinking of any, any, anything in particular, any particular conspiracy, conspiracy theory you've heard of? Well, the one that I, I just ran across is that, um, you know, the, the Chinese are trying to poison us through tilapia and um, other goods. Um, and I was like, I'm not, I don't think they're doing it willingly. I think they just have very poor standards of health and, and um, compared to this country. And then the, the issue that if the Saudis were to get mad with, with the U.S. and they pull all their money, would our economy collapse? Well, I think the Saudis depend a lot more on the U.S. than the U.S. depends on the Saudis. Um, the Saudis benefit a great deal from their relationship with the U.S. I mean, we we sell them their weapons. We teach them how to use their weapons. Uh, we like without American weapons, Saudi Arabia. I mean, yeah, maybe they they probably go buy their weapons from China, or Russia, or somewhere else. But I mean. I think that, that, you know, Saudis depend greatly on the U.S. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I mean, we like we live in a globalized economy. Every economy in the world is dependent on pretty much every other economy in the world with the possible exception of maybe North Korea um, and maybe Somalia. But, like, basically um, – you know, that's why in 2008, you know, the financial crisis, that, which was caused by uh, essentially a housing crisis in the U.S., caused had a ripple effect and, and caused um, a massive uh, global financial crisis that, you know, led to you know, sort of the, now we're seeing the meltdown of the, the euro as a currency and uh, these crises, uh, these um, financial crises around. The same happened right now with the Turkish lira uh, dropping. It's, there's, we're seeing ripple effects around the world in, in Latin America, South, South America. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we live in a global economy. 
And so, and, and, and that's never going to change. There's, there's no going back. There, there, there's, I mean, people, these people who talk about globalism as, as, as a great threat to American values uh, just don't understand the way the, way the world works. You can't undo tech. Once technology exists, it's pretty difficult to undo it. Um, you can't undo international phone calls. Like you and I are perhaps talking uh, 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 international. There's no one in the world is going to be able to erase that technology, right? There's no way to undo the technologies that exist. Um, and so it's just the world is going to continue to become more and more globalized and countries are continue to become more and more dependent on one another. Um, and I think that trend, and, and we're seeing a bit of a, um, we're seeing that trend recede a little bit now with this, the rise of these sort of nationalist and anti-globalist movements. And there are peaks and troves to these trends, but the general trend, if you zoom out, um, if you zoom out, um, I think pretty much at any level, look, take a 10 year, 20, 30, 40, a hundred, a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand year time period. The general trend of human history is we're becoming more connected, more global. Um, uh, and, and that's only going to continue. Well, taking a broader approach to, to the greater Middle East, um, you know, you hear a lot that, uh, the U S gives tons and tons of money to the Israelis, but that money is actually, um, like, weapons and the weapon counts as money and they do the same with Egypt and possibly with Saudi Arabia or other places. So um, in your research about, you know, last time we talked about Palestine, do you think that it's fair to, to say that the, the U.S. is funding the oppression of the Palestinians or the hegemony of the Israelis when it actually is a deal to uh, provide uh, weapons and technology just like they're doing with Egypt and possibly Saudi Arabia? The U.S. definitely plays a, a key role in, um, in, in yeah, Israeli criminal activities and behavior in the occupied Palestinian territories and inside Israel. I mean, the U.S. is the primary, really the sole um, superpower, um, its primary backer um, at the U.N. Um, and other international forums, um, the U.S. provides military aid to Israel, economic aid to Israel, which is kind of obscene. Um, the U.S. is um, also provides, um, you know, not, not just diplomatic and political and military and economic aid, but um, also gives it this kind of sense of legitimacy when you have, an, uh, you know, American leaders, um, American uh, congressmen and congresswomen and senators. Um, and governors and pretty much the entire like American political apparatus sort of pro provides this sense of legitimacy uh, to the actions of the Israeli government. And so, um, it, you know, and, and that has ripple effects. So, yeah, absolutely. But, but the pushback I have is that the, the economic aid that is that is usually claimed to be millions of dollars is mostly in. Um, some type of um, deal they have on, you know, we'll give you weapons if you if you buy them or we'll give them to you in credit and then you can pay us later. It's not like hard cash like some people claim. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know the details of, of those packages. I think usually at least the military packages amount to, uh, what is it, two, three billion uh, a package and 
is that I'm not sure if that's a year or a few years, but we're talking billions of dollars in aid to Israel. Um, you know, and so, yeah, this is, um, I, and again, I, I, I don't know the details of those agreements, whether or not they're sort of loans and they have to be repaid or whether they, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite certain they have to be used. They have to be spent on, uh, American made weapons. <laughs> um, that's usually the case with most deals, be them aid or be them loans, is that they must be used to purchase American-made weapons. Um, this Israel is certainly not unique in that sense. Um, um, but, um, I mean, you know, ultimately, like, whether or not these agreements are loans or gifts, I mean, ultimately, it's, you know, I think from the point of view of America's moral position in the world, um, it doesn't really make all that much of a difference. Well, and are you familiar with, you know, I, I usually say this, but I don't know if it's true, that has America ever been involved in giving weapons to two different sides of the conflict just because they're buying American-made weapons? That's a good question. Um, that is a very good question. Have we armed both sides of a conflict? I'm sure we have. Um, did we do it in the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s? Maybe. Um, we probably, I mean, I, I would be shocked if we haven't done that. And, and that leads to like the, the final, uh, question is, uh, how much are we, um, like we were talking about freedom of expression. We're talking about journalism, um, being a protected status, uh, here in the U S but how much are we as people who live in the U S who benefit from, uh, the wealth and the stability of this country, how much are we in cahoots with the whole system because um you know i've gotten into debates with with fellow progressives about like coming from a third world country it's really easy to to bash the u.s but compared to other places uh you can't even bash your own country because you end up like uh, uh mr Khashoggi. so how is the u.s um like this this balance that you know, progressive and democratic uh, values are are there, and you have to tap into them to to make a difference. But there's also authoritarian and um, colonial and imperialistic forces as well. So it's like a, a hodgepodge of of different forces. Or is America bad at all times, like some people claim? And then, well, if it's that bad, uh, how can we live in a, in such an oppressive society? Yeah, there's no question the United States does a lot of bad things in the world. I, I, I think most of us would agree about that. Um, I think it's also fair to say that the United States, um, you know, represents, uh, I mean, in, imperfectly, like, uh, uh, certainly, like, a political system that um, that is... Um, I'm struggling to say this because, like, I'm uncomfortable saying this. But, you know, there, there are certainly a lot of great things about American democracy. Um, there are certainly a lot of great things about um, economic opportunity in this country. Um, I mean, in fact, I mean, that's one of its great weaknesses as well as people are workaholics, right? I mean, maybe that's not such a great thing. But and what it does mean is that you have more economic, economic opportunity here than probably anywhere else in the world. Um, we are a melting pot. It's, I mean, we accept... And, and, and integrate our minority populations better than most places in the world, certainly much better than Europe. And, and, and I, I would expect men, most many, if not most places elsewhere in the world as well. So there are a lot of great things about this country. Um, you know, I, I don't think that it's, it's 
there's nothing controversial of saying there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. Like, I, I think that's, you know, that's just sort of the case everywhere. But, but what is our role? Like, is our role to uh, challenge and critique and, and make the place better or to bail out and, and move on? Like, because the way that a lot of progressives paint the U.S. is that it's the, the most evil place in the world. And it's like, if it is that evil, then go find another place that, that you are more morally, uh, you know, you accept morally more than, than this place. Yeah, I, I, look, I think, um, I think it's the duty of, of, of all, uh, you know, people in this country to hold the government and our elected uh, officials uh, responsible for the policies that, that they um, are, are producing in Congress and, and on Capitol Hill and in the White House. And, and so, I mean, we're responsible for the good and for the bad. And, you know, I think it's, it's our sort of duty as citizens to, to kind of hold our officials accountable for that stuff. Great. Well, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Uh, we will be playing your um, your piece on Saudi Arabia that is very relevant and important at this time. And um, I hope that uh, we can keep the discussion going. Again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Saudi Arabia, or the country whose flag screams, we come in peace. In 2016, King Salman of Saudi Arabia appointed his son, Mohammed bin Salman, to be the next king. Everybody's been describing his rise to power as a historic transformation. Historic change in Saudi Arabia. Some say Mohammed bin Salman's rule as crown prince is the start of a transformation of Saudi Arabia. The kingdom of Saudi Arabia is on the brink of one of the biggest transformations in its history. That's right, a historic transformation. A king in the Middle East appointed his son to be the next king. This is transforming Saudi Arabia into the fourth most progressive country in the northeastern Arabian Peninsula. It's right behind Kuwait, UAE, and the nation of Wadiya, whose leader can be seen here winning his 14th gold medal. By the way, he also received the Sportsmanship Award. At which he won 14 gold medals. Our main question tonight is, who is Mohammed bin Salman? And what kind of transformation is he actually bringing about? Mohammed bin Salman is known in the West as MBS. In the West, we just call him MBS. We'll refer to him by his initials, MBS. Commonly referred to as MBS. Also known as MBS. 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 MBS, as everybody calls him. Correction. Annoying pundits call him MBS. Unlike his grandfather, Ibn Saud, who had 22 wives, or his father, King Salman, who had four wives, MBS has only one wife, Sara bint Mashhur, his first cousin. Like I said, transformative. Pretty soon, Saudi kings are going to be marrying non-blood relatives. Yeah, Habibti, I love you, even though you are cousin by marriage only. Some of the hype has been about his plans to liberalize the country, such as by allowing concerts. Egyptian pop singer Tamer Hosni is performing in the western city of Jeddah at the end of March, and to fans' surprise... The tickets instructed attendees not to dance or sway. Swing? Band at a pop concert? Good thing, because as everybody knows, swaying is a gateway to having seated wheelbarrow sex. 
MBS is also loosening restrictions placed on women. He's allowed women to drive and attend soccer games. Saudi Arabia is even giving women the right to view their own marriage certificates. Saudi Arabian brides will now be allowed to have a copy of their marriage contract. Historic. Women are now entitled to know just how fucked over they really are. Now, MBS might be improving some rights for women, but he's been taking other people's rights away. With MBS in power, the number of people detained in Saudi prisons with no due process has skyrocketed from 293 people four years ago to 2,300 people today, nearly a tenfold increase. You can get arrested in Saudi Arabia for basically anything. Just watch these guys learn that lesson the hard way. Two Saudi men were inspired by a YouTube video of a man who was giving out free hugs. They decided to do the same in the country's capital city. When the House of Saud caught wind of their acts, they were arrested for engaging in exotic practices. I'm assuming that the list of erotic practices in Saudi Arabia includes showing your elbows in public and smoking four cigarettes at the same time. MBS loves putting people in prison. In 2017, he detained hundreds of royals, ministers, and businessmen who were critical of him and tried to portray the whole thing as an anti-corruption crackdown. The fight against corruption. Saudi Arabia's anti-corruption crackdown. MBS called this a corruption crackdown. Prince Mohammed bin Salman's new corruption crackdown. You heard correctly. MBS is putting an end to corruption in Saudi Arabia. That's why he bought the most expensive painting in the world. $450.3 million. He owns at least 18 luxury vehicles. He bought a $300 million French chateau. It was reported to be the most expensive private home in the world at the time of purchase. It has a cinema, a deluxe swimming pool, fountains that can be controlled with an iPhone, and a moat with a transparent underwater chamber where koi carp can be observed swimming. Wait, hold on. Koi carp? That's the most exotic fish you could find? Koi carp are like the Chrysler LeBarons of fish. Koi carp didn't even make it onto United Airlines' security question, what is your favorite fish? Like, how would MBS have answered that question? Where is koi carp? 54 favorite fish options and no koi carp? What kind of top 54 favorite fish list security question doesn't have a koi carp option? So, MBS has expensive taste in paintings, cars, and houses. He's also got expensive travel habits. We're told it is not uncommon for the prince to buy out entire luxury hotels while visiting another country. Apparently, he's done that here at the Four Seasons Hotel. All 285 rooms booked for his people for the next three nights. Okay, hold on. Even if you've got eight people to clip each one of your toenails, that's still only 80 people. What about the other 205 rooms? Like, even if you had 16 toes, which is possible. I'm, I'm not saying that's not possible. It's definitely possible. But you'd still have 157 spare rooms. But it's not just that MBS has extravagant taste or that he's a wasteful spender. He's also impulsive. Prince Mohammed bin Salman saw a super yacht floating in the south of France and it caught his eye. So he decided to make an offer for it right there on the spot. And the deal was finalized within just a few hours. A few hours? I don't understand what took so long to buy a $550 million boat that wasn't for sale in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. MBS must have been pissed. I want my yacht now! So, how is MBS able to afford all this stuff? 
Turns out he's really corrupt. According to The New Yorker, when MBS was growing up as a kid in Saudi Arabia, he brazenly used his status to enrich himself. In one case, when a Saudi official refused to help him appropriate a property, MBS sent him an envelope with a bullet inside. This earned MBS the nickname Abu Rasase, or Father of the Bullet. I assume now he'll be taking up the nickname Brother of... Melting hunk of uninformed apricot jello... And... Constipated Cheeto Donald Trump. So, MBS is corrupt, but he's also ruthless. In 2017, he oversaw the destruction of the Saudi Arabian town Hawamiya. And nobody's out, because soldiers were actually around the city, just shooting everybody who's in the streets. When we went out in peaceful protests, security forces used to disperse us with live ammunition. Hawamiya was destroyed, and its residents were terrorized because the town was a hotbed of Shia critics of the regime. But just have a look at how the region's mayor described the situation. The region's mayor said the old districts are being cleared to make way for new infrastructure. He also claimed that most locals wanted to see their neighborhoods redeveloped. That's right, they wanted redevelopment. That's why Saudi Arabia is now being featured in a brand new TV series called Urban Renewal. Walk around town and get shot in the head by a sniper rifle. MBS might be autocratic, but everybody's been talking up his economic reforms. MBS is trying to wean the country off oil and diversify the economy, which is great. But what is he actually spending Saudi government money on? Aside from hotel rooms for his posse of 285 toenail clipping specialists. $3 billion, $533 million, $525 million. That's right. MBS recently spent $12.5 billion on American weapons, part of a larger agreement that could amount to $350 billion. Which I suppose makes sense if your military was underpowered. Saudi Arabia now spends more on its military than Russia. This makes it the country with the third largest military budget globally. Hold on. You spend more on your military than Russia? That's like spending more money on a dining room table than Ben Carson. Or spending more money than Donald Trump on orange hair implants. But MBS's most important economic initiative is called Project Neum. He's introduced his Saudi 2030 vision, which includes plans for a half-trillion-dollar megacity in the desert that will have robots, drones, driverless cars. That's right, driverless cars. Women got the right to drive, and MBS was like, Shit, we need the driverless cars ASAP! MBS clearly believes that robots are the future. He's even making robotics history. You have been now awarded what is going to be the first Saudi citizenship for a robot. That's right, Saudi Arabia gave citizenship to a robot. Finally, a solution to the country's woes. Robots casting ballots in general elections. I'm just kidding. There are no general elections in Saudi Arabia. But there is something else you should know about Project Neum that does promise some hope for the future of the country. And there'll be zones where men and women can mix publicly. Dedicated zones for gender mixing? Spring Break 2019 in Neum, Saudi Arabia. What, 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 what? I'm just kidding. Neum won't be ready till 2030. Hey, Saudi Arabia, way to give yourself plenty of time to prepare for the day that men and women order at McDonald's in the same line. So, MBS is autocratic, 
oppressive, corrupt, and fiscally reckless. And we haven't even talked about his foreign policy yet, which has been an unmitigated disaster. In 2015, he started bombing Yemen and imposed a blockade on the country that is leading to the deaths of 130 children a day. The indiscriminate bombing has prompted investigations by the UN for possible war crimes. MBS also has nefarious plans for its other neighbor, Qatar. Saudi Arabia is angry over Qatar's ties to Iran and its television network, Al Jazeera. So they've imposed sanctions on that country too and are now planning this. In an attempt to further isolate the tiny Gulf Emirate of Qatar, Saudi Arabia is reportedly planning a canal project effectively making the peninsula state into an island. Wait, you want to turn Qatar into an island? But islands are better than peninsulas anyways. No one's ever been like, sweetie, let's do a getaway vacation on a scenic remote peninsula. Thanks for watching. Please like and subscribe. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.